Please read with me, everybody. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into her house. Into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, as Scott said, we've been working our way through John's Gospel. And we're up to chapter 8, and if we were reading in John, we'd read this bit, and you can probably see it there in your Bibles if you've got one. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21:38. Or Luke 24:53. So what are we supposed to do with this when we come across it as we're reading through? Should we just skip over this bit? Or should we just read it as scripture anyway? And probably the bigger question that we've got is, should we start to wonder whether we can trust the other parts in the Bible or should we have doubts about them too? This little section in John raises some pretty big questions. So I'm going to have a read now of what it says and then we'll think about what we should do with it. So this is what the little section in John 8 says. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So I was, I was telling a friend the other day that I was going to be speaking on this passage and I was telling him how it was going to be a bit of a, a strange sermon for me. Normally what we do is we open up God's Word, we hear a passage read and then we, we preach on that passage. Or occasionally what we might do is we'll pick a topic and we'll look at all the different ways that the, the Bible speaks about that topic. But it's extremely rare that I do a sermon like I'm doing today because passages like this one are extremely rare in the Bible. Now, clearly there's huge doubts about the passage that I just read. In the New Testament, there's, there's only one other passage like this, and that's the passage at the end of Mark 16. So today we're, we're doing something quite different. We're looking at a passage that looks like it shouldn't be in the Bible. And so I was, I was telling my friend that I was going to be doing a sermon like this, and he said what maybe many of you are thinking right now. He said, but I love that part of the Bible. It's one of my favourite parts. Maybe you feel like that too. So today I want to do three things. I want to talk about first how we really can have confidence that what we're reading in the Bible is overwhelmingly the same as the original text that God inspired. That's the first thing. And then, second, I want to talk about what we do with texts like John 8. And really, I'm talking about what exactly do we think the Bible is. That's what we'll do second. And then finally, I want to briefly look at the message of John 8 and consider if it's consistent with the Bible or not. So first of all, I want to show you that we really can have confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Many people assume that, that you can't trust the Bible. I'm sure you've spoken to lots of people like that. They assume that things have been changed and, and errors have crept in, so much so that what we've got today is massively different to the originals. But I want to give you just a taste today of why that perception is completely not true and it's actually the opposite. We don't have time today to fully cover the discipline of textual criticism, as it's called. This is a science that applies not only to the, the biblical text, but all ancient texts. But as it turns out, amazingly, this wasn't planned, but there's an expert on this from Cambridge going to be speaking this Friday called Dr. Dirk Jonkind. He's going to be speaking at the University of Adelaide at 7pm this Friday on exactly this topic. How can we trust a 2,000-year-old book? And I'd strongly encourage you to go along and to think about this topic in a bit more detail. It's really worthwhile. What I'm going to do today, though, is to give a brief, 
a brief outline of some of the issues and of some of the answers. And I'm going to do that focusing on the New Testament and focusing really in on John's Gospel. As I'm sure you know, we don't have the originals of the 66 books of the Bibles, of the Bible. At least they haven't been found yet. And it's really unlikely that they'll ever be found because the materials that they were written on wear out with time, especially with lots of use. Originally, they wrote the New Testament on papyrus made from plants and later on they wrote, wrote on parchment made from animal skin. So we just don't have the originals. What we have are copies of copies of the originals. Before the invention of the printing press, the, the only way that you could get a, a copy of Scripture was by hand copying it. And so when a, a letter or a gospel was written, it was copied and distributed pretty much from day one. And that process continued for the New Testament for 1,400 years or more until the invention of the printing press. And when you hand copy something, there's always the real risk that you'll make a mistake. And this is exactly what we can see happens. We can identify mistakes in the copies. Now, most of the mistakes are things like spelling errors, especially of place names. Some of the mistakes are where people have accidentally missed out words because their eye jumps from one similar word to another same or similar word later on. Sometimes a a different word gets used that has the same meaning. It's a synonym. Sometimes the scribes seem to go into autopilot and when something sounds very similar to another part of the Bible, they end up writing what it says there. And then there are errors that are intentional changes as well. So occasionally a scribe changes something, not necessarily to be misleading. You know, these aren't people with black curly moustaches and capes. They're not trying to corrupt the text and mislead the people. Usually what they're trying to do is correct what they think is an earlier mistake. Sometimes they're trying to protect some doctrine or clarify something in the text that's, that's hard to understand or seems to be lacking or they're trying to match it to another place. Whatever the reasons, whether accidental or intentional, errors enter the text. And this is what happens for every ancient text. Copying mistakes are inevitable. The question is, can we recognise these changes in the text? And can we recognise where the text is the same as the original? And the answer is yes and yes almost all of the time. Let me give you an idea of of the kind of confidence that we have by comparing the New Testament to other ancient texts. So there's Julius Caesar's Gallic War written about 50 BC. There are about nine to ten surviving manuscripts of, of good quality of this work. The oldest being about 900 years after Julius Caesar wrote it. Uh, Julius Caesar's time. Then there's Livy's Annals of the Roman People, written sometime between 59 BC and 17 AD. There are 20 surviving manuscripts and there's only one as old as the 4th century AD. Then there's Tacitus and his histories and annals, written around 100 AD. There are two manuscripts as old as the 9th and the 11th centuries. For the works of Homer, it's much better. 
There are 643 known manuscript copies, which some say allows us to have 90% confidence in the accuracy of the text. Now, compare this to the New Testament. There are 322 unseals, that's an early way of writing, 2,907 minuscules, that's another type of writing that's a little bit later on, 2,445 lectionaries and 127 papyri, that's really early copies. So in 2017, the number of manuscripts that we have, all ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament, is about 5,800 copies. Now this is absolutely remarkable and no other ancient book comes anywhere near it at all. And then on top of this, there are early translations of of the New Testament as well into other languages. Now, of course, the more copies you find, the more differences in the manuscripts that you find as well. But the more manuscripts that you find, it really is the case that the more confidence you can have about what the originals actually said. This is what one expert in this area says, Paul Wagner. He writes, it's important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question. Of these, most variants make little difference to the meaning of any passage. So when it comes to the Bible, over 99% of the time, scholars strongly agree on the most likely original reading. Over 99% of the time. And there are some bits that are not completely clear, but not one of those bits affects any major Christian doctrine or belief at all. This is truly remarkable. God has overseen 1,400 years of hand copying so that the exact same message of salvation that Jesus brought to the apostles has been delivered to us 2,000 years later. Do you know that the oldest papyrus fragment of the New Testament that they've found is Papyrus 52? And it's dated around 150 AD. There's sort of a bit of a debate. Some would say even earlier, like 110 AD, and some would say up to you know, 180 AD. And it's a fragment of John's Gospel, actually, that they've dug up and found from John 18. Now, John is thought to have written his Gospel in about AD 90, which means this fragment that we have is from a copy of his Gospel made probably about 60 years after the original, after it was written. The idea that the accounts of Jesus' life came into existence over hundreds of years and that the message was changed over that time, that's a fairy tale. It just doesn't line up with the evidence. The accounts were written within the first century by those who actually heard and saw Jesus and their accounts, the apostles' accounts, were so valued and highly prized that they were carefully copied and passed on from that time onwards. If you want to not believe in Jesus, you've got to find a better reason than thinking that the message has changed over the centuries, because that's just not true at all. So let's get back to John 8 and see how some of these things that we've been looking at, let's see how they impact what we do with this passage. The furthest back we can trace this passage in John 8 here, is to the 5th century AD. So no manuscripts before the 400s have got it and none of the church fathers comment on it or quote it 
their commentaries just pass straight over it as if it wasn't there. And as the notes in our Bibles show, the, the early manuscripts don't have it. And the other thing is, the majority of manuscript families don't have it either. Now, just like you can trace human families through DNA, you can trace text families through differences in their copying tradition. Now, funnily enough, it's, it's the minor errors that lets you recognise the text families because one, one text will misspell a place name and then that gets copied and passed on so you can recognise a text family around some of those errors. The text families, they were initially shaped geographically so all the copies would be made in one area, all the copies would be made in another area and then you can compare the different text families. When they're the same they've been separated from years, you can know that a much earlier common source is the same. Just like if we've got the same DNA, then we've got a much earlier common relative. And when one text family has got something different to all the other text families, right, then you can be confident that it's the one that's got the error. And that's especially the case when the early papyri confirm this to be true. So with our passage, John 7:53 to 8:11, it's only really in one text family. And it's not in the early papyri. This kind of evidence that we're talking about is called external evidence when you're looking at the manuscripts. But there's also internal evidence where you look at the evidence from within the text itself and the internal evidence also goes against John 8. Like the fact that you can skip straight over this text and John's Gospel just keeps flowing nicely. And there's also the fact that the style and the vocab in this text are quite different to the rest of John. It's actually more like the, the style and the vocab that's in Luke's Gospel. So on every front, John 8 just doesn't seem to be a part of the original of John's Gospel. That's why we didn't read it as scripture before, we read Luke instead and that's why I'm preaching such a strange sermon today, a sermon like we don't normally do. John 8 is clearly not in the original version of John's Gospel and the fact that it's so clear, well it illustrates why we can have such confidence in the rest of the text. Now I don't expect what we've covered today to answer all the questions that you've got and even on, on Friday, if you go along um, to see Dr. Dirk Yongkine, it's not enough time to answer all our questions. It's a great thing to do. But I want you to know the answers are definitely out there. Um, I'd encourage you to read, read a book like Paul Barnett's Is the New Testament History or that kind of thing. Or if you want something that's a bit more accessible, Cold Case Christianity was written by a, a detective who was an atheist who kind of applied his detective skills to the New Testament Gospels to Jesus and ended up becoming a Christian. But hopefully, even from what we've been able to see today, you've seen that instead of being concerned, we've got every re reason to have confidence in the Bible. John Piper says about John 8, rather than being rattled, he says, on the contrary, you can be thankful that God has in his sovereign providence over the transmission process for 2,000 years ordered things so that the few uncertainties that remain alter no doctrine of the Christian faith. That is really astonishing when you think about it and we should worship God 
because of it. So we're going to move on now and briefly think about what we should do with texts like John 8. What do we do with them? Which is really asking, what do we think the Bible is? That's the second thing that I want to show you. I want to show you that the Bible is God speaking to us in what was spoken to them. It's kind of tempting to think, oh, John 8 is is such a great passage. It's such a great story that even though the, the evidence is against it, I like it and I feel like God is speaking to me through it. And so therefore he is. That's tempting. That's not how God speaks to us though. That's just the spirit of our age speaking. I was watching Ralph Breaks the Internet on Friday night with the kids. Good thing having kids that you have the excuse to watch those kind of things. And there's a scene where Butcher Boy, you can see him there in the middle, he says, you know, I just saw a really insightful TED talk and I can't really remember what the guy said. It was more about how it made me feel. Now, even Disney is aware of the spirit of our age about how how we feel. I mean, Disney is, you know, probably nine-tenths responsible for it. John 8, it's a great story and it, it could well have happened. But it's not part of the original work of John and it's not part of Scripture. And us wishing it was because of how it makes us feel just doesn't make it Scripture. See, because Christians... We don't believe Scripture is something that the church or anything or anyone else sits over and endorses. We don't believe that we accept Scripture because some authority says, yes, we endorse this. We simply recognise the authority that God has already given Scripture. He speaks and, and we simply acknowledge His voice. Do you see the difference? One says, you can know this is Scripture... Because we say so. So just relax and take our word for it. The other says, you can know this is scripture because God has spoken it. It's not that the church sits in authority over scripture. But neither is it that the individual sits in authority over scripture and says, this is scripture because I consider it to be. Scripture is scripture because God has spoken it. So think about 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. Or 2 Peter 1.20, where Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says to the apostles just before he dies, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then a bit further on, Jesus says to the apostles, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. This isn't a promise for all of us. This is Jesus talking to those who have been with Him from the beginning. 
and who will testify about him as the Holy Spirit inspires them to testify. This is about the apostles speaking God's word to us by this is this is about the apostles speaking God's word to us by what was spoken to them. The Bible is God speaking to us in what was spoken to them, the prophets and the apostles. What this means for us is that the way that we recognize that something is scripture is by three main things. These are the three. So for the New Testament, first, the author must be an apostle or a really close connection of the apostle. And second, the book must have always been accepted as God's word by God's people all along. You know, that's partly how we can know that it's, it came from an apostle and didn't just turn up as a forgery later on. And third, the book has to contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching because God doesn't contradict himself. And when God speaks to the apostles, he's not going to contradict himself. John 8, it fails on those first two, first two items, doesn't it? We can't know that it's from an apostle. And it wasn't clearly a part of what was accepted as God's word until the 5th century. So to say John 8 for me is scripture would be to not care about what God is and isn't speaking. And I reckon this this point actually has implications for us well beyond John 8 as well. God doesn't speak to us in Scripture in a kind of mystical, anti-historical way. Have you ever thought about that? When I was young, I I used to kind of think about Scripture in a a mystical, anti-historical way. I used to play flip the Bible open and see what God is saying to you. I don't know if you've ever tried, tried that. It was kind of like using the Bible as a magic eight ball. I gave it a little go as I was preparing this sermon. And I got, um, Boaz was the father of Obed, I think. It didn't, it didn't really help me in that case. That's how, that's how I used to read the Bible when I was, when I was young. But it's not, it's not the way that we're supposed to read it. It's not how God promises to speak to us anyway. God he still is speaking to us today in Scripture. But Scripture's not about how it makes us feel, how it uplifts us. It's about what God is saying to us through those He chose to speak through. So we shouldn't disconnect God, God's Word to us today from its original meaning given to the prophets and the apostles. Now, it might seem like I'm kind of splitting hairs you know, here, but it really is a big deal. It's the difference between being guided by how we feel or being guided by what the Holy Spirit is actually saying. That's a big deal. Let me sort of flesh out for you where I think a little bit this might hit the road. Sometimes when you see the Bible put on nice pictures, you know in the 80s it was always with kittens for some reasons. Um, Now it seems to be with mountains and forests. Now there's nothing wrong with these at all. But sometimes you read what's on these things and you can't figure out how they, they got what they say from the original context. Have you ever felt like that? They're nice little sayings, don't worry, it's all good. But they're disconnected from the original. So much so that it can feel sometimes like we're not really interested in what God is actually saying. Don't get me wrong here. I love a good picture with a Bible verse on it. It's excellent. But why it is excellent is because it casts our mind back to what it says in the original. What would not be excellent 
would be if I'm, not, I'm, I'm interested in not worrying, but I'm not interested in why God says I shouldn't worry. That would not be great. I think it's similar with certain versions of the Bible. Lots of different versions of the Bible are, are great. They've all kind of got their place. But with one or two Bible versions, sometimes it's hard to see how they reflect the original. And yet you hear people say, that's the only version I like. If what we like about those kind of versions is that they make God's word more palatable, more real, more relevant, more alive, well, that is a problem. What matters is not that we feel uplifted and inspired. What matters is what's truly inspired. If we're interested in what God has to say, then we need to listen to the way he says it. If we care about the Holy Spirit's voice, then we'll care about what he told the apostles and the prophets to tell us and part of doing that for us today means we've got to let go of John 8 as scripture but I want to say today and this is my final point that I'm briefly going to say I want to say nothing is lost in doing that nothing is lost in letting go of John 7:53 to 8:11 this this story of, of the woman caught in adultery it it tells us that Jesus doesn't condemn sinners but neither does he encourage you know he doesn't condone sin he doesn't encourage it in the story jesus grace covers her sin and his grace is aimed at converting her from her sin go and leave your sin that's what's going on in john 8 but it's not just what's going on in john 8 it's the gospel that tells us this message John 8 is entirely consistent with who Jesus is. It, it kind of illustrates the way that Jesus doesn't come to condemn sinners like we've already seen in John 3, for example. But at the same time, neither does he approve of sin like we've already seen in John 5 and we'll see again in the, in the later part of John 8. And this story, it illustrates the way that Jesus gives a new foundation for living a foundation that's not based on our fear of the law or our fear of judgment. Instead, it's a foundation based on God's grace, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his love, like we see, for example, in John 15. So how can the adulterer or any one of us leave our life of sin? Only by meeting and experiencing Jesus and his grace. Now, All of that we see in this story, but we don't just see it in this story. We see these things in many, many places in Scripture. We don't lose anything by not having this story. That's why we read John, uh, sorry, Luke 7 earlier, because you see those exact same things there. The message repeated again and again in the Bible is that Jesus doesn't come to condemn us in our sin, but neither does he come to encourage us in our sin. He comes to die for our sin at the cross. That's the message, to save us from our sin. He comes to give his life on the cross so that we can be forgiven and be a part of God's family. And from that foundation of grace, we can live as God's own children. That's the message. We hear this message as loud and clear today as the day that Jesus spoke it. We hear it as loud and clear today as the day that John first took up his pen and wrote it on that first papyri. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
none of us can claim ignorance. None of us can hide from this. All of us have, have got to ask, have we responded to Jesus' message, which has been passed down so faithfully? Have we responded to his offer of grace? If you haven't responded, here's how you do it. You talk to God. You admit that you've sinned against him. You admit that you deserve to be condemned by him. But you ask him to forgive you because of Jesus' death in your place. And he will. And then you leave your life of ignoring God and you start living with Jesus as your king. And you will never face God's judgment. Never. Ever. That's the message God declares to us in the Bible clearly, unchanged from day one, unchanged across the centuries, still the same to this very day. And what a message it is that we have. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the confidence that we can have in your word. Lord, we thank you so much that through your prophets and apostles, you have spoken to us that these are the very words of the Holy Spirit, that he still speaks to us today through them, that the message of grace freely available in Christ is as loud and clear today as it ever was, even on Jesus' own lips. Father, we thank you so much that we can know for sure that we can turn to you and be forgiven because of Jesus and that we will live forever as your children, all because of Jesus. Thank you for this amazing confidence that we can have, Lord, for the wonder of Scripture. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.